Welcome to Deep Roots, the podcast brought to you by Oak Hill College. Um, we're delighted to have with us today Dr. Sophie Abebe. Sophie is our newest colleague here at Oak Hill, and this is her first time on the podcast. Sophie, it's wonderful to have you. My name's Tim Ward. I'm on the teaching staff here. And I'm Matt Bingham. I'm also on the teaching staff. And most importantly for today, so is Sophie Abebe. Sophie, it's been wonderful to have you at Oak Hill for the last few months. Just tell us what you teach and a bit about yourself. Sure. It's been lovely being here. Um, I teach the New Testament in Greek. I'm Sophie Abebe. I finished now, two years ago, <clears throat> my PhD on One Peter from the University of Edinburgh. Um, I have been teaching at a school called the Ethiopian Graduate School of Theology in Ethiopia for the past two years now. Um, yeah, so I'm very happy to be here. It's great to be talking about First Peter. I can see why you would want to do your dissertation mm -hmm. on it. It's an incredibly rich letter, lots of encouragement for the people of God, for the church. Um, lots of tricky passages, though, as well. Some difficult content in here, some verses that, that aren't immediately clear. So I hope we can get into some of those as well. Um, but before we do, maybe to set the stage for us, just tell us a little bit about the kind of big overarching um, theme that you see kind of anchoring the letter. Right. Um, the way I read First uh, Peter, um, it's to see it as contending for, um, you know, this idea that God's presence is now accessible through Christ. Um, so when we look at the um, image of Christ, the presentation of Christ in 1 Peter, we get that sense. It is through his death and resurrection uh, that believers now have access to the presence of God. And um, in association with that, then um, 1 Peter is an invitation to live in consciousness of that presence by doing good, uh, by imitating Christ. So doing good is then translated in various passages, significant passages within 1 Peter as imitating Christ uh, and imitating God as well. Because there's that text um, in one fifteen that says, be holy as I am holy. So the imitation of the holiness of God and the imitation of Christ's non-retaliatory um, response to suffering to his persecutors then becomes um, the organizing principles, the um, yeah, the, the two uh, ideas behind 1 Peter, presence of God um, and then imitating God, Christ. Presence of God with His people, right. imitating God exactly. in Christ. Right. Yeah, that's great. And mm -hmm. in a moment, we've we've got some of your uh, favorite passages in, right. in First Peter. We'll look right. at in more detail. Before we do, just just maybe touch on something mm -hmm. um, you're talking about. You know, so you were doing a PhD, University mm -hmm. of Edinburgh, studying this in that research university context. Right. My understanding is that a lot of your colleagues there, professors there, mm -hmm. would uh, call into question. The, the Petrine authorship mm -hmm. of this letter, right? Mm -hmm. And say, uh, Peter didn't actually mm -hmm. write it. Um, Christians throughout the ages, they, they look at it and the first line says, Peter, mm -hmm. an apostle of Jesus Christ. Um, how have you sort of navigated that? Mm -hmm. and, and where do you come out? Right. Um, I think when we consider arguments for Petrine authorship and arguments against, um, it boils down to, uh, you know, proclamations for things that don't really, no one can really prove. So these are um, not facts that there are arguments for and against, which are both good. Um, and then it becomes a matter of one's, um, you know, uh, view when one says uh, Peter shouldn't, couldn't have written this. It then becomes more um, 
it's not evidence based it becomes more uh you know a hunch that is not justifiable to others um and patriarchal authorship has been um recognized by you know recent commentators like um Travis Williams um you know who's just had uh, published a massive commentary on one peter two volumes with david horrell um so there is room for accepting that when people reject that peter hasn't written it's 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 usually something like oh the greek is too good um this fisherman couldn't have written it um but then at the same time we need to consider um the fact that um peter is very open about having you know written through um a secretary through a translator someone uh, other than him that's one way um the church has dealt with the authorship question and another is there has been about 30 years or so um between his first calling when Jesus first called Peter and then the writing of 1 Peter and also one of the earliest uh, readers of 1 Peter um we've got a very rich tradition that associates Peter um with his epistle um so yeah so the apostolic tradition that we have um the early church tradition that we have uh, attributed it to Peter So um when you look at these things and then certain semantic um you know constructions of greek uh, phrases uh, for me it's convincing that peter wrote 1 peter um yeah oh, so and if, so he's got his jewishness comes through in the language even it does, though it's in greek it does yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. there's that uh, jewishness that comes through and then um his association with rome um has been also evidenced um and the letter, letter is written from rome So Peter is associated with Rome and with Mark as well. Um yeah, he yeah. mentions it yeah. at, at the end of the yeah, letter. Yeah, yeah. My son Mark sends his greetings. So there's all of these internal as well as external evidence um yeah. to support that. So yeah. with your New Testament scholar hat on as someone who's right. looked at this in detail and looked yes. at the secondary literature that's grown yes. up around it, mm-hmm. uh you feel confident to say mm-hmm. Peter wrote this yes. and if I'm preaching this text, I can feel confident. Uh yeah. Oh, saying that definitely yes even the level of persecution that we see in 1 Peter when you compare it to what's going on in Revelation it's very different mm-hmm. um what Peter has in mind is you know the social alienation maybe false accusation in courts things like that definitely not you know a government wide and imperial decree to persecute christians that fits with the traditional setting of 1 peter in the early 60s uh, with peter having written it so it it seems to cohere really well and it convinces me to say peter wrote it interesting so those more yeah. widespread persecutions mm-hmm. came in later at the time in which people who don't think it was written by peter mm-hmm. think it was written exactly and you're thinking well if it was written later why yes. doesn't it reflect those things exactly absolutely yeah, yeah, yeah. and with his um concern when we compare it to other writers i think it's hebrews that comes close um when we find you know in chapter 2 we have this temple imagery uh priesthood and also sacrifice so temple priest sacrifice this um triology this combination it's very rare it shows that peter is steeped in jewish culture yeah. um yeah. and so if he wrote it as the saying goes when peter if peter doesn't write it then it's an author uh, or a group of authors the petrine school in rome or maybe the pauline school that wrote this in the 70s then why would he not mention um you know the temple's destruction yeah. uh, or be more pronounced about the sort of suffering the sort of you know eschatological meaning he seems to attach with suffering yeah, yeah. i think that would have been something he wouldn't neglect 
um, he's gone to such length um, to build the character of Christians in terms of Jewish, uh, you know, Israel's sacred uh, past. So it would feel odd, I'd, I'd presume. So there are several, um, for me, convincing reasons to consider that Peter wrote this. Um, at any rate, he says he wrote it. So there's that um, narrative author as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, clearly articulating that he wrote it. Brilliant. Yeah. It is great, isn't it, to just sit with someone who has immersed themselves in the book of the Bible. Mm. Um, and now, I mean, we, we could fill hours and hours. We, we, we Actually, we chatted, didn't we? How are we going right. to do this? Because yes. you've got a lot on one, Peter. I, first of all, had the very terrible of idea of let's just try and work through the whole letter in sort of 40 minutes. Yeah. And my two colleagues here just said, that's... Too ambitious, thing. Too ambitious. <laughs> Too ambitious. That's like a podcast <laughs> series. Instead, better idea, right. one of your ideas, I can't remember who. You're just going to pick two or three passages of your favourite passages and just uh -huh. give us a sense of how that little passage sure. works within the overall picture that you've given us mm -hmm. of the big yes. thing here is right. the church lives in the presence of God yes. and so must be Christ-like yes. because of that presence. So, right. so if you, what's the first passage you want to take us to? Um, if we look at chapter 2, verses um, 4 to 9, mm. um, there is this beautiful uh, imagery and architectural image of the temple uh, made up of living stun stones. I tell you, why don't you read the passage first? Oh, I can, yeah. yeah, yeah okay. why don't you just, right. read, just read it and then okay. go for it. All right. Um, so verse four, chapter two, verse four, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So there we have a very architectural image of an edifice. Um, mm. There's quite a, a number of arguments here. Is it the temple? Is it not? But it seems to be the temple because there he's mentioned the purpose of this is to offer sacrifices, um, something that was done in the temple that we find in the Old Testament. And also he talks about the priesthood, a holy priesthood taking language from Exodus. Um, so a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Um, verse 6, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his, for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were, uh, you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So here, um, what Peter does is build um, a spatial imagination. It's it's not made up imagination. It's it's um, a language human geographers use with regards to thinking of space as a construction, as a production of not just one's thought or conception, but also something that is physical and real. So here, that imagery it's built on um, what we find in the old testament conceptions with the temple there's a priesthood offering sacrifices and then it's a physical temple mm -hmm. um, and so taking that idea he says 
you yourselves are living stones and the cornerstone, the living stone um, is Christ. So he describes here then um, a corporal reality, but that's also corporeal. It's through the embodied presence of each individual believer that this um, spiritual edifice comes to exist. So it's a very powerful image. So he's thinking of um, space that is being dwelt by believers through Christ. And the believers are to consider themselves uh, as living stones. Like the living stone Christ, they are rejected because that is the context that um, the readers are in. They are persecuted, they are uh, maligned because of their um, identity in Christ, because they have become Christians. And so he's giving them this image as an invitation to think of their maligned position, their um, position at the periphery, you know, with the center being the dominant ones, their persecutors, they are at the periphery, um, but the periphery is, lo and behold, the center. That is the space of God. So he's um, flipping the charts, the map that um, the world has, that Rome has, uh, not just through the means of saying, you know, Rome is at the center, um, but he's saying whatever is at the center, the social, the norm, what ought to be, um, that is not actually the center where the action is, where God is in that edifice um, where his presence dwells. So I, it, this is one of um, my favorite parts, and I feel like it holds the key to understand the whole of 1 Peter. Um, if we think of the whole of 1 Peter as constructing an imagined but also real, a third space, a, a space that is felt, um, embodied through our bodies, uh, but also different, then it becomes very powerful. So, so yeah, third space. Yeah. What's a th what was a third space? Um, third space, human geographers, um, from whom um, we take, you know, in the New Testament, there has been uh, our own Matthew Sleeman um, has taken, you know, this third space um, language, human geography, uh, in his interpretation of the book of Acts. Um, uh, Patrick Schreiner um, has done it for the book of Matthews. Um, and in 1 Peter, um, David Horrell has an essay, although his is a post-colonial reading. So he's looking at how, where is the place of Rome? political otherness, etc. Um, but for me, um, without going into this resistance discourse or the worldly realm, for me, um, the way I read it, Peter is drawing a third space, meaning a space that is um, embodied, felt, but also that is infused with what we bring into our conceptions. One way to look at um, Oakhill College would be to say, Oh, it can be mapped. It's in the North London in, near Southgate, uh, and it's you know its postcode is so and so. But another way to say it is, um, Oak Hill is where I encountered God in my classrooms. It is the space where I grappled with major life challenges, and it's a place where I, through the encouragement of men and women, um, I came to love God more. Both are equally valid. It can be mapped, of course. It is an actual real, it's not a made-up space. It, it, it can be located. But another way of looking at it is through its impact on me or how um, I felt and what I experienced at a time called X uh, while being embodied physically living in 
uh, Oakhill College. So there are two ways of concept conceptualizing space then. Um, in this third, more richer paradigm where, you know, beyond the physical, space becomes the conceptualized, what is in my head about that space. And also the combination of this that extends beyond to say that um, to belong to space X, maybe Oracle College, or to belong to the space of God or in Christ to be a Christian is to live um, with the principles of A, B, and C. When we look at 1 Peter, that space, we can simply call it the in Christ space, borrowing language from Paul, but to be more true to the text of um, 1 Peter, we can just simply call it the space of God. Um, he, okay, so yeah. this is inter- this spatial imagination yes. thing, is re- that's really interesting. Yes. Because as you were, to, I mean, as you, were to, you were using language like what mm-hmm. people see themselves as on the periphery or yes. on the edges, on the mm-hmm. fringes. Like, so even Christians thinking about their place mm-hmm. in the world, mm-hmm. we're using la- we're using kind of spatial language, yes, as a metaphor, yes, absolutely, to describe the fact that might feel marginalised mm-hmm. or might feel we're in a minority, yes, or not like mm-hmm. don't share the values that a lot of other people seem to yes. have, yes, and I. If I'm getting what you're saying, you're mm-hmm. saying Peter's, he's kind of running with that. Okay, let's think spatially. Yes. And, and then... Um, and he reaches for yeah. this temple imagery. Yes. And said, okay, yeah. I, I, I want to flip... Mm-hmm. He used a really nice phrase. Like, mm-hmm. just, I won't get the words exactly right, but something right. like, he, want, he wants to flip the mental map that the Christians have completely around. Absolutely. That's what he's doing. Terrific. And then in verse 11... Um, as a response to this spatial imagery he builds, he says, Beloved, I urge, you, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, etc. So he's calling now um, Christians in, he's using the identity of some sort of you know, citizenship in the space of God. And calling, because the audience is the majority Gentiles, he's writing to people in Asia Minor. So yeah. in Anatolia, it was an ethnic mix of different, um, you know, people. But he's now um, calling them by something other than Gentiles. And he's saying, do not resemble the Gentiles. Mm. But technically speaking, the ethnic identity, if we come down to it, these people are not Jews, and and therefore, because they are not Jewish, they're they're um, Gentiles. But here, um, in this space of God, He's giving them a supra-ethnic identity. It doesn't matter whether one is, you know, Gentile or not, Jewish or not. Um, this supra-ethnic identity is their belonging in the space of God. Um, this sort of reading is different from earlier um, scholarship that would see you know, being a Christian, as having our home in heaven. We're here for the time being. Uh, we're going to go back to heaven. Okay. It doesn't matter. Th- that's not what he has in mind. It's very embodied. So embodied that he would then... Um, mean, as in, he's saying to them, the presence of God has shown up in the world. Exactly. It's not out the there. The presence of God is right yes. here. Yes. And it's in you. Yes. And although the world looks at you and says, you yes. believe a bunch of nutty stuff. Mm-hmm. And you're a fringe group. Yes. You, the temple was very obviously at the centre of God's mm-hmm. purposes. Yes. It's gone, and now, and now you. Yes. You are that centre right now right. of God's presence and purposes in the world. Absolutely. 
And they're wow. uh, that's going to blow your mind. It, it's it? very Christian. interesting. And the human geographers talk about the production of space, um, so the propagation of space, um, and that I see here as um, the missional call that Peter um, has given. He says. Um, in verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, there's a number of um, interpretation mm. that can be behind this text, but the missional import that um, Peter has is repeated throughout the letter um, in the directions that he gives to um, wives or slaves, etc. The purpose is by responding appropriately to suffering through non-retaliation and being conscious of God and God's will, um, people would be attracted to this to this space of God. So it's an, uh, an invitation, a missionary call to um, the production of spaces to call other people into that you know, so, space of God. Okay, this is really interesting. So right. I think you're saying that these practical instructions he goes on to give yes. to slaves and wives and mm -hmm. husbands and so on, right. and to all Christians in suffering, mm -hmm. is saying... The presence of God is in you. Yes. You are in the presence of God right mm -hmm. now right. in the world. Right. Here is how you live that out. Mm -hmm. And if you do, mm -hmm. it is that is how mm -hmm. the Lord will call people into his presence right here exactly. and there and now. Exactly. Uh -huh. So the, the, in that, there is that, again, the imitation of Christ. Yeah. Um, who called, he says, he called us through darkness, uh, us who were in utter darkness um, to his marvelous light. So that is something we need to imitate Christ with. Um, and he also says something along the lines of uh, be ready to give a response to whoever asks about the hope that is in you. So respond in order to attract others to your space, the space of God, where God dwells. Um, so these um, two you know, principles of yep. the presence of God um, and imitation of Christ um, go throughout the text that's that's yeah one way of reading it thank you that's fantastic i know right. we could spend longer digging into right. that passage but yeah. i'm very keen to get to the next pa next passage because mm -hmm. it's one of the trickiest right. in mm. in right. one peter maybe some people think it's one of the trickiest in the whole new testament right. and Absolutely. before we hit record mm -hmm. matt you were regaling us weren't you with an old sermon that you had on this very passage Yes. Which you don't have to preach now, I, if I, I can say that. Well, I, I might need to revise my conclusions. <laughs> I don't know. We'll, we'll see. You, right. you so I, I did look this up. I yes. preached this, I don't know, I think it was back in 2013, 2012, mm -hmm. something like that. And I was I was looking back on this text, and I, and I found I had dug up a, a, a quote from Martin Luther right. on this text where he said he thinks this is one of the most obscure passages yes. in the whole New Testament, and he's really not sure what it means. Mm. So yeah. set us all straight. Set Martin Prince. Luther straight. Where are we? We're in First Peter 3, are we three. not? Uh, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the presence of Noah, while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. 
So, so someone yeah. preparing a Bible study or a sermon on this is Great. going to turn to the commentaries and find pages yeah. and pages and pages going, well, there's about yes. 18 views and let's talk through them. Yes. So, so if you help us cut, cut to the heart of the matter. Great. Um, there are a number of difficulties. Um, one of the first difficulties here in, um, well, in verse 18, when it says, um, Christ was made alive in the spirit. What does it mean to be put to death in the flesh, made alive in the spirit? Um, but I, I think this is uh, this would follow standard um, doctrine that Jesus um, Jesus resurrection was an embodied resurrection. You know, we've got that famous passage from um, the Gospels with Thomas having come and touched uh, Jesus' um, hands, and so it, it's an embodied, um, yeah. Uh, resurrection and so the Holy Spirit here seems to be hinted at in verse 18 and then in verse 19 our um, hunch is uh, yeah it, it it is made certain He's, it says um, in which um, or maybe in whom um, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison so actually so, so just help for those who right. don't have the Greek in front of them because right. there's an absolutely crucial little Greek phrase yes. here isn't there right. en ho en ho absolutely I'd, now I've got the NIV 2011 right. here 19 right. begins yes. after being made alive mm-hmm. now clearly we, we can't dig into all the details right. here but just yes. give us a sense of what's going on in the translation there right um, I think the NIV is trying to fill uh, what is hinted at they're trying to bring um, to the forefront uh, you know the clear succession of um, actions or events th- that we see between verses 18 and 22 when did uh, you know the resurrection occur or, or when did the proclamation occur uh, when does the death so here there, there seems to be a sequence that the NIV wants to you know make clear for the reader mm-hmm. um, so in saying after in, in adding these ideas they are trying to bring out you know the aspect that we see um, in the grammar of the Greek um, but in addition to that if we say as the ESV I'm reading from the ESV um, when we say in which he went then the spirit they are leaving it ambiguous enough for the interpreter to work through but Enho um, I would argue would be in him the, the, the Holy Spirit or okay. although it's not um, massively wrong. Uh, one thing we know here, Christ dies, that is event number one, put to death. Yep. Um, and then event number two is proclamation. So you think 19 is saying, yes. and in the spirit, yes. he went. Yes. Okay, that's helpful. Right. Uh, and then proclaim to the, the uh, spirits in prison. So the, the difficulty in verse 19 is, who are the spirits in prison? Because nothing up to this point prepares us for any sort of beings in prison. So the idea of being in prison um, has been debated quite a lot. Um, there are some who say that um, here the prison it's metaphorical, um, the prison of sin, disobedience. It's it's a sort of yep. sin. Uh, it's a sort of prison, you know, uh, in which people get entangled. And again, um, even the the idea of proclamation. Is it proclamation or is it preaching the good news? So is it... Um, for, for conversion. For conversion, yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. And then the spirits in prison, do they refer to people who are dead? I mean, who are dead and to whom Christ then went and gave them a second chance by um, proclaiming to them the message of the gospel. 
to give them a chance to repent? Uh, or is it something like um, a proclamation, an announcement, an invitation to join the kingdom of God made by Christ through the likes of Noah? Yeah. Because there is a sort of support for people who would argue that um, in verses 10 to 12 in chapter 1, where um, Peter tells us that prophets in the Old Testament preached not to their own um, you know, audience, to their own contemporaries, but to people who would come later. So he says um, in verse 10 of chapter 1, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. Verse 11, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. And in verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels look to long to look. So here then proponents of this view would argue it's through the Spirit of Christ, meaning the Holy Spirit, um, that Noah or any mm. of the prophets, righteous people, Am I correct? This was Augustine's yes, view of this that, passage. Yes, so the, so the, very influential. Spiritually, Jesus in Noah, back in Noah's day, yes. preaching. Yes. And this is what you preached in your sermon, isn't it, Matt? You, you I, have come clear. I surveyed five yes. views yeah, and right. eventually came down. At, at great length, it right. turns out. On at great length. Yes, right. yes. It and was a, and it you're was with yeah. Augustine, which is often a good place to be. Yes. However, yeah. Sophie, right. that's not what you think, is it? I don't think you so. You stand against um, Augustine. You what? stand against me. I, 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 yeah, I see that in humanity. Look, I'm going, right now, I'm going with her. <laughs> right. Come on, Sophie. Uh, because, w- why, you know... What, what, do you, what do you think this yes. means? What do you think this is talking um, about? For about 1,500 years, the church was convinced that Augustine's view is the correct view. Okay. Um, but in my opinion, there are two problems with the Augustinian view. First, um, there is nowhere in the New Testament where um, spirits, even though here... Um, you know, it says the spirits in prison, it could be potentially human beings, but there is no uh, occurrence in the New Testament where spirits um, is applied to human beings unless it is qualified. In Hebrews, it says something like um, unjust spirits. So unless there is a qualification, some sort of adjective attached to it, spirits has never been applied to human beings. So then um, where does spirits appear? In the Gospels, um, spirits appears in the plural to refer to otherworldly beings, demonic beings, evil spirits. Uh, so there's that problem, one. Um, second problem, um, Augustine wasn't a major fan of one Enoch. Um, I can understand why, um, because when you are trying to um, establish orthodoxy and canonicity becomes a very important issue, then any sort of, you know, uh, Admit, admission that one Enoch might be here behind uh, one Peter can can threaten quite a lot of things. So one Enoch, um, a yes. Jewish text. Yes. I mean, obviously, there's a lot about that we can't get into mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. But you, for you, that stand in some sense yes. stands in the background of one Peter. Yes. What is it particularly about that that mm-hmm. you think will help us interpret this rightly? Right. Um, for a long time, it was thought to be just one Peter that's behind the idea here, but other tradition, Jewish traditions like the Book of Giants is um, seems to be behind this. There we have um, a sp- spirits in prison. Yep. Um, so Noah's flood came, um, 
as a response to um, God having um, heard the prayers of the righteous, they were being subjugated by these uh, ferocious giants who are the offsprings of um, fallen angels. You know, in we've got Genesis uh, five, um, where it says the sons of God uh, met with the um, daughters of men. So, in one Jewish uh, tradition, this resulted in an offspring called the giants, mm. who are the Niflim. They are from um, Genesis six. Yes, yeah, yeah. Who, who are huge? Um, yes, sorry. Um, yeah. Uh, so they are huge, big people um, with insatiable um, appetites and um, you know propensity to do evil teach humanity um, how to do evil, etc. So everyone was groaning under their um, yeah, evil deeds. And so um, the flood came to respond to not just evil humanity, disobedience, um, but because the level of evil has reached such a huge, um, you know, there was such an avalanche of sin that God responded through the flood. And the flood uh, destroyed unrighteous humanity, disobedient humanity, um, but also these giants. Their destruction was partial, though. They were, um, they had been, the bodies, they were embodied, uh, but after the flood, they lost their bodies and became spirits. And they're called spirits in prison yes. in these Jewish texts. Exactly. And Because the, the flood imprisoned them, in a right. way. They lost and you're their thinking bodies. that Peter... Is yes. knowingly drawing on that language. Yes, it seems and people to be would there. have recognised that he um, was. Maybe not knowingly. Perhaps that was oh. the tradition that was there. Okay. Uh, maybe he he didn't have the Book of Enoch or Jubilees or you know yep. Book of Giants before him. Uh, maybe it's not a, a a conscious you know taking of that. It's not. Maybe the relationship is not genealogical. But it's in the air around him. It, it's it must have been gonna, exactly in the cultural milieu. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, if yeah. someone talks about I don't know BBC. It wouldn't be yeah, a surprise yeah. in this day and age, isn't Fair it? Um, so there's that idea of spirits in prison, meaning demonic beings, evil beings. This sort of interpretation, I think, is also supported by verse 22, uh, where Peter says, uh, Christ now has post-resurrection. He's, he's talking about the enthronement that Christ has. He says he is at the right hand of God, meaning, um, you know, in his uh, throne of majesty, uh, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjugated to him, subjected to him, subjugated, uh, you know, him being the conqueror. Um, so there's this um, sort of neat um, framework that we find here. And when we think about oh, why... So, so, so it follows the order? I think it does, So yes. 19 and 20 for you are yes. Jesus between death mm-hmm. and resurrection. Right, spiritually yes and then it moves on and in 22 we kind of picture him now ascending yes uh, but, uh mm-hmm. res- resurrected bodily and then ascending yeah post-resurrection so the enthronement that we find okay. in yeah. you know yeah. ephesians 2 and other parts of the new testament and now when we think of this it's one of the three christological sections in one peter mm. so verses 18 to 22 this Christological um, section has come as a justification what, to what Peter was saying earlier, verses 13 to 17. Um, there he says, basically, to sum it up, um, do not live um, in the terms of your former life. Live um, in good behavior. Suffer for what is good. 
do what is right. Yeah, yeah. And then he goes on to discuss about this. Why would he? Why is the atonement um, or the death of Christ and the resurrection and his enthronement relevant to what's going on here? I feel like it, the same thing is going on in chapter um, two as well. After talking about, you know, being um, the necessity of being subject to others for the sake of Christ, um, he goes on to say from verse 21 or onwards, um, for this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. And then he talks about um, Christ's um, perfect death. Um, he said, it, you know, taking the metaphor of sheep. Um, so he says, you know, he was um, reviled, but he didn't revile back. Um, all of this happened to him. Uh, and his response was in verse 23, um, to entrust himself to the to whom? To he um, who judges justly. And then he says, you too do this. Yeah. So the famous follow in his steps. Um, That's really time. interesting. That's really helpful. So, so I don't think I'd seen this before. In both chapter two and chapter three. Yes. He goes, here are some instructions about right. how you must live a moral right. life. Yes. Not your own pagan life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and reason? Yes. Because of Jesus. And right. in chapter two, it's yes. um, because he suffered. Yes. Because he bore our sins in his body on the cross. Mm-hmm. And in chapter three, he does the same. Here are instructions about how yes. you should live. Exactly. And then verse 18, it's really similar, similar, mm-hmm. isn't it? 3.18. Yes. For he also suffered. Yes. But now he then adds in chapter three what he didn't add in chapter two. Absolutely. This proclamation yes. of Christ's victory. Yes. And you're mm-hmm. seeing that, I'm afraid. Mm-hmm. Sorry, Matt. Sorry, Augustine. Right. I think, and I think sorry, <laughs> Wayne Grudem in right. his Tyndale commentary. Yeah. Uh, not spiritually back in the days of Noah, mm-hmm. but between crucifixion and resurrection, he goes yes. spiritually, proclaims the victories won on the cross right. to these imprisoned spiritual beings. Right. And then 22 into resurrection yes, uh, and ascension. Yes. Those bits, mm-hmm. after the cross, proclamation, mm-hmm. ascension, resurrection. Yes. What extra, and they're not in chapter two, what chapter extra three. do they add, do you think, within what Peter's doing? What extra right. do they add to his, his how you should live? Right. Um, he's been doing this. The, the other, the third um, Christological section appears in chapter one. Yep. Uh, there again, before um, giving, you know, his instruction on how to live, uh, he gives it a Christological reason. Okay. So when we look at um, chapter one, verses 18 onwards, he talks about us having been believers, having been ransomed um, from our futile ways, uh, etc. And then he says in verse 21, uh, through him you are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. And so here, um, and then he takes the image of the lamb, uh, the ship's image. And then beginning from verse 22, he talks about the need for responding through obedience. But um, it's different from the Christological section in chapter two that we just mentioned, or chapter three. So each time he seems to build um, on what it means for Christ to have died uh, and for that death to have impacted us. And so it, this adding on or maybe going deeper theologically is something we see. So in chapter three, the new thing that he adds, um, spirits in prison, aka, um, sorry, Matt, demons, etc. All of this then leads us to chapter five. Um, 
when we look at chapter 5, verse um, 8 and 9, um, there he says, he actually mentions at this point, um, you know, the devil. Um, in verse um, 8 and 9, it, he says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith. So there's this then here, a clear articulation about, um, you know, he's at this point, he was talking about suffering. He's writing to people who are suffering at the hands of um, humans, unfriendly humans who um, consider their um, in Christ identity to be, you know, a bad thing. But starting from chapter three, we see that in, in verses eight, 18 to 22, we see that Christ's resurrection, his death and suffering for us. So for us, it's something that goes through um, these three Christological sections. Um, somehow he cites otherworldly beings. It's not a random thought. Again, in chapter five, he says, you know, um, the devil wants to prowl upon you. So here then he is depicting the space of God being in Christ as an antagonistic space not only human enemies, not only um, your neighbors are as persecutors, but the greater evil that lies behind. Look, he's a defeated entity, you know. So otherworldly beings being subjugated through Christ um, bears a message of hope um, to Christians. So behind all evil, um, this is a very biblical idea, behind all evil lies Satan, um, the demons and, you know, the otherworldly beings and the, the whole um whatever <laughs> beings are yeah, there yeah, sure. right let's call them i'm tempted to say authorities and and powers etc taking languages from ephesians and chapter 322 but you know demonic beings and so the greatest sort of persecution um even from the devil it's not grand it hasn't been elevated to something as a substantial other. So the devil is not depicted as, there aren't many words he spares. It's not a significant other that merits so much consideration. He simply says, resist him. Meaning, because Christ has been victorious and sits enthroned, um, having subjugated all de demonic beings. And, and went and proclaimed his victory to exactly, their faces. Exactly, exactly. So firm in your faith, resist him. So resistance then, then becomes... Um, in to elaborate, it becomes then living in consciousness of God, because here he says, "Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of suffering are being um, experienced by the brotherhood." Yeah. And after you have suffered uh, a little while, the God of all grace will um, uh, Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So He's in a way here um, citing. One way of resisting the devil by being firm in our faith, faith that Christ has overcome um, the devil, has overcome any adversity. Yeah. And now evil is manageable. We can negotiate life in this foreign land by being conscious of the space of God, the presence of God that is with us and by standing firm, meaning continually um, living a life of obedience. This is fantastic. And this presence of God, yes. I think what I'm seeing really clearly mm -hmm. He spells out this presence yes. of God yes. and what it is and how we are in it yes. in these very rich, you've yes. identified three very rich passages mm. about Christ that cover right. cross. They cover what Christ does yes. in that often mysterious space between mm. 
crucifixion and resurrection right. yeah. covers then resurrection yes. and it covers ascension mm-hmm. and now sitting at the right hand of the Father. Yes. yes. This is fantastic. Yeah. You've given me a lot to think about, Sophie. Yes. If I have a chance to <laughs> preach this again, I'll have to replay this yeah. discussion. Sophie, yeah. this has been fantastically yeah. rich. Oh, but it's wonderful. It gives sense, doesn't it? Um, and then when we look at the different things that Peter says, for example, do not you know, gossip, basically, or do not you know, um, be caught stealing or doing malicious things, do not malign others, uh, etc. He's then saying, uh, being in the space of God, um, is to live in consciousness of God. In fact, in verses um, in chapter three, verses eighteen to twenty-two, the difficult passage um, in verse twenty, he talks about baptism. Again, there is a lot of debates about what is it that Peter is doing. He says, um, you know, after talking about the spirits in prison, he says, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. So here, then, when he talks about baptism, he's doing a contrast between Noah being saved through water, that act of God's save, uh, saving Noah and the eight and people, his his family, uh, meaning saving them from from the unrighteousness that was among them, um, he says baptism corresponds to this, relates to this, um, and baptism he says is this but not that. So there is this, but this not that, but not um, construction. He says it saves you not as something a removal of dirt. Again, there is a lot of debate about how we can sure. translate that, but he's saying he's comparing two things, the lesser and the greater. The lesser, the baptism is not just the removal of dirt, not as that, but something greater. He says um, it is something that will result in in an appeal to God. There's so much debate here. The way I read it, um, it's Peter is saying uh, baptism um, is an action, a special practice, a practice that the indwellers of the space of God through Christ partake in that by doing baptism, we are proclaiming our allegiance to Christ. So it's a symbolic action that then unites us through the resurrection and then the victory that he talks about in verse 22. So we are united in Christ. So there is a lot of participation theology and works on union with Christ in 1 Peter. Um, Although Paul takes the the um, sure. yeah the focus, but there's still that idea. So here, then he's saying through baptism, the believer relates to God, either as a you know as a pledge of obedience, perhaps spoken verbally during baptism in the first century context that we have here. Uh, perhaps through baptism, one is aligned with Christ, that that person is given. Um, an ability because he's saying it's not just moral the the removal of you know sin from the body not just the washing the purity rights from the old testament but something else so the idea here is then the removal of impurity mm. the removal of moral defiling force of uh, immorality so there is some moral um on the moral sphere something deeper going on so either the person through baptism and that person's union with Christ that person is given um, the ability to be united with Christ, one is that, or two, through the very practical right of, you know, being baptized and then proclaiming 
um, something like, um, I pledge to live in consciousness of God's presence, then somehow the person and God become related in a way that um, chapter two has told us as members of God's household. Somehow through baptism, which is connected to Christ's death and resurrection, the person relates to God the Father in a different way. It now becomes through Christ. That's that's fantastic. So you're linking very really nicely there. Yeah. The the end of chapter three mm-hmm. to what's been said. Actually, this brings us nicely full mm-hmm. circle right. to where we were at the beginning. Mm-hmm. That passage in chapter two right. about living stones. Right. Sophie, this has been rich. I mean, we could sit here for a lot longer, yeah. and I'm getting a taste of the kind of conversations we can have with Sophie over over coffee, yeah. and um, and the kind of riches people are going to get if their students here being taught one Peter, right. another yeah. another New Testament scriptures by by you. So thank you. This has been massively helpful. Thank you. Final question, Matt. Yeah, I think um, maybe for a final place to land, Sophie, we could yeah. let's step back from mm-hmm. the the detail a little right. bit. Um, You've sat with this text for a long time. Great. You're familiar with it before you studied it in yes. depth for your PhD, but yes. now you, you've really yeah. uh, spent time in it and with it. What would you say are uh, one or two of the big uh, applications mm-hmm. that you've taken away personally? How mm-hmm. has First Peter shaped your own faith and your mm-hmm. own walk with the Lord? Right. Um, at various points in my life, I felt like I was on the periphery. Uh, with everyone being at the center and me, myself, wanting to be at the center, but circumstances felt like I was pushed to the periphery. Um, this could be, you know, um, I left when I was, I left Ethiopia, I'm, I'm from Ethiopia. Um, I left Ethiopia to pursue undergraduate studies in Germany. It was an international um, university and there were so many, 67, 70 countries were represented in the student body. Um, but at the same time, um, I was doing uh, biochemical engineering. I was one of the handful of women there and the only Ethiopian um, in my class the first year, second year, uh, other scheme. So that felt like, you know, having no one to speak my mother tongue with, my native tongue, that sort of felt like I'm on the periphery. And as a whole, the evangelical students' body were out of, you know, middle-sized university, we were a tiny minority. That in itself, although we shared lunch on the same table, we prayed before we ate, we made made a whole big, we embodied our periphery existence. So, um, yeah, that felt like one way of being on the periphery. Again, in Edinburgh, again, becoming, you know, one of the handful of women um, doing New Testament studies and being the only person of color, you know, either um, African or brown or Latino, they were just, I could just spot two or three people, but they were in usually um, in world Christianities or doing theology proper, systematic theology. So that felt like I was on the periphery. Uh, among my friends, um, I was the only one who was a mother. That in itself was an alienating experience. All of these peripheral situations that um, people, Christians, find themselves in um, is beautifully um, dealt with in 1 Peter. He doesn't just ignore it, um, but he redraws the map so that center and periphery become reinterpreted. The center is where Christ is. So to have been given that invitation uh, for me was powerful. 
And I would imagine people who are neurodivergent or people who have special needs or take care of um, children with special needs who always feel like, you know, I am at the periphery. This is not what should be. I feel like one Peter is a beautiful, um, you know, invitation to reimagine things. Christ is where we are, uh, where we are is the center because of Christ. And so this periphery existence, this alienation then becomes, um, you know, it, it loses its force. So then if Christ is the center and me being in Christ is the center, then I'm encouraged and emboldened um, to truly be present in whatever spaces that I occupy, not to think of um, where I am in terms of Ethiopian or non-Ethiopian, black, white, or anything else. What Peter gives us is a supra-ethnic identity. Even gender doesn't matter anymore. It doesn't matter if I am the only woman um, in um, you know, lecture halls or in conferences. Where Christ is, there I am. To feel like I belong, that's so powerful. And the other thing is um, the action orientation that we find in 1 Peter when he says, don't do this, but do this. Um, want this, not that. Um, he is saying um, through Christ, we have been given um, the capacity to choose what is right. Uh, we are just like Christ, living stones where God has chosen through his grace to to embody. Um, you know, so there's that um, in terms of, you know, fleshly desires is something he talks about in terms of um, our grappling with sin um, or temptations or feeling like an utter failure before Christ who's done so much for us. One Peter is saying, hold up, Christ has done it. Um, in his uh, grace, you have been given the ability to imitate him. So it's it's this powerful image, I feel like, given for Christians who tend to perhaps lose hope uh, or, you know, punish themselves thinking I am not worthy of Christ. He's saying he, through his death, he's made you worthy. He is with you um, and you've been given this ability to be conscious of God. Um, so I, I feel like it's a, a very helpful text, um, even for our type of Christians who are not living um, in contexts of persecution. Um, where the prime minister in Ethiopia, our prime minister is evangelical. So it's in fact fashionable to be evangelical. It's the reverse of being persecuted. So even for, um, and in London, there is no one who'd persecute us um, if we go to church. It's, it's, um, so even for us living in cultures where Christianity is not punished, um, Peter has a lot to give us. Hmm. Great, thank you. Sophie, thank you, thank you so much. Ezra. Thank you. That, that's the most moving end, ending to one of our podcasts that I can remember. It's lovely to hear how all of that high-level, sophisticated, brilliant scholarship just in the end leads to these life, wonderfully life-transforming things for you. And, and hopefully that's certainly inspired me. Hopefully that will inspire others who are listening in. be great thank if you, you could join us on the podcast again soon. Sure. But for now, thank Thanks you so, so much. much thank you, Matt. Thank you. Take care. Thank you.